Okay, so I have an invitation for you. That invitation is to grab your Play-Doh. We have an art project this morning in church. So you're going to grab your Play-Doh. Everybody has Play-Doh? Okay. An easy assignment today, something that we are all well-versed in. What do you love? Play-Doh. Play-Doh. Oh, then this is really easy. Okay. Okay, thinking about what you love... I want you to mold your Play-Doh into the object of something that you love. It can be a person, place, or thing, but what do you love? Okay, so I'm going to give you, we don't have too much time. Uh, Some of you might be thinking of yourselves as like the next Michelangelo. You're you're sculpting something that's just going to live on for thousands of years in museums one day. But I encourage you to do a really rough draft, like a 30-second version of this. And then I'm going to ask some of you what you created. Okay. Who, who has something already going? Okay. Bruce, what, what are you making out of your Play-Doh? Oh. Bruce is making his wife. Is Sarah even in the room today? Sarah's not even in the room right now. She's in the nursery. That's how much Bruce loves his wife. He's not even trying to win easy points. Though you can all tell him about, or tell her about his deep love for her. Some other things. What are some other things that we're molding? Yes. A cookie. My wife made chocolate chip cookies yesterday, and I ate way more than my son realizes I ate. I ate like three for everyone he ate. Something else. What else are we molding? Yes, Melissa. Kids. Yes, kids are a blessing from the Lord. Amen. Something else. Oh, Lucas is making a music chord. Josh. Anime. Anime. Nice. Yes. People. People. I love it. So we are all molding a lot of fun stuff. Sadie, last one. Pizza. Amen. I love pizza too. I discovered that this Play-Doh is way uh, stiffer than I expected, so I didn't make anything. But if I were to make something, it would be... Maybe like a can of Coca-Cola. I love Coke, like Diet Coke. Let's be, let's be clear, soda. I love soda. I also love Disneyland. So maybe I'll make like a castle to represent Disneyland. How many of you love Disney? Nice, okay. So Disney might be something that you're molding. There's lots of things that we might be molding. Well, let me tell you this. As you're thinking about the things that you love, I want to encourage you that Jesus cares about your desires. Jesus cares about the things that you love. He's curious about them. He values them. Maybe not in the same way that you do, but he recognizes that they're important. When we look at the Gospel of John, the very first thing that we see in the Gospel of John is we see him ask about desires. Okay, so let's look at the story. Jesus goes out to John the Baptist in the wilderness where he's going to be baptized. John the Baptist sees the Spirit of God descend on him. The next day, Jesus was walking by, and John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Son of God, or behold the Lamb of God. That takes us to our passage scripture. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as they walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? I kind of love this. Jesus is just minding his own business. He's just walking. He looks around. He has like these two dudes following him. What do you want? Like, what do you want? Why, why are you following me? What do you want? They said to him, Rabbi, 
which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. I love this. What do you want? Where are you staying? Now, there's a couple of different ways that we could understand this. When he's asking, or when they ask Jesus, where are you staying? Maybe they're like, oh, Jesus does not want to hang out with me right now. He doesn't have time for me. Maybe I'll ask where he's staying so I can come back later at a better time. Or is they asking for something else? Or are they asking for, for time? And that's what Jesus gives them. He says, come, see, follow me. First thing spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of John. What do you want? Jesus cares about your desire. When Jesus asked these two men, John and Andrew, what are you seeking? What do you want? He was asking them to define their purpose, to define their goals. They could have been looking for a leader of a revolution to overthrow Rome. And if so, they probably should have joined the Zealots. Like, that was going to be their guy. But their answer, where are you staying, that communicates something a little bit different. Jesus invites them to spend the day with him. They met him in the morning. And undoubtedly, they had the day where they could uh, listen to Jesus share his mission, answer questions, and reveal his heart and their heart to them. We don't really see what that day looked like, but both were so impressed by Jesus that they went out and they found their brothers. Andrew found Simon, and John brought James. Andrew told Simon, we have found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. This is John verse, chapter 1, verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So the Jewish understanding of Messiah is that it was the king who had come to deliver them and establish his kingdom. So these four men had an encounter with Jesus that changed the course of their lives. Nothing looked the same after they started following Jesus, right? When we think of other stories of Jesus calling disciples, we think of the fishermen in the boat, and Jesus invites them to become fishermen of men. They don't go out and fish anymore. Well, not until the very end of John. But for the most part, they're done fishing. They're now ministers. Their life looks different. Every time someone goes to follow Jesus, it's disruptive to the rhythms of their life. It's disruptive to the rhythms of their life. It's not just a cognitive change. It's not just a heart change. It changes the way they behave. And that's what I'd like to draw your attention to. Just as your loves drew you to one side of the room or the other, and just as Peter, Andrew, James, and John's loves draw them to Jesus, our love informs the direction of our lives. Our love forms our habits. Right now in the media, we see that America is in the midst of a war of ideas, right? And conservative parents, many of them being Christians, are rightfully on guard about what is being taught to our children in schools. We're hearing a lot about critical race theory. We're hearing a lot about the LGBT agenda. And while we're waging war of intellect in the public square, we're actually ignoring another war that's maybe more powerful, a war of affection. 17th century 
French philosopher Rene Descartes argued that humans are thinking things. You are what you think. We think of the mind as the mission control of humans, right? How many of you have seen Inside Out? Like kids, have you seen this movie? It's a really cute movie. So we think of the mind as this mission control zone. And so what has happened since Descartes gave us this idea that we're thinking beings is we spend a lot of the time cultivating our thoughts, cultivating what we know, cultivating what we believe. We want to make sure that our kids are aware of the truth, that they're, they know enough to challenge the lies that the world tells them. And Christian discipleship, for the last century plus, has largely become a discipline of the mind, what we think. It's an act of learning. Bible studies, theology, apologetics. Christianity is often the faith of a thinking person. One of the things that I've lamented is that oftentimes people who grow in the Christian faith need to read a lot. Not all of us love reading. Sometimes when we think of ourselves as human beings, we think of ourselves as bobbleheads, right? Like giant heads, little bodies. What's really important is what's going on up here, but we don't think about the rest of us. Our heads matter. Our minds matter. This is well supported in Scripture, right? We're told to take every thought captive, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But the problem is, the head isn't the only thing that matters. We often behave like it is. There's more to us than just our mind. It's not enough to know a lot about Jesus. To know a lot about the Bible. It's not enough to be able to win a debate. Because we've seen that some of the men who know the most about God, who know the most about the Bible, fail to translate that behavior into Christ-like living. Like, how upsetting is it when some of the greatest Christian teachers we know of our time, we find out are engaged in all kinds of terrible, sinful activity? The last couple of years, Ravi Zacharias As he was passing away, we discovered scandal after scandal. And then once he died and they did an investigation, he had a continual habitual sin of victimizing women over and over and over again. It's disgusting. This man knew his Bible. He studied his Bible. But habitually, he was victimizing women. Great teachers fall not because they don't know. They fall because their love is directed in the wrong place. How many of you have experienced a gap between what you know and what you do? Right? I'm a little bit heavier than I would like to be right now. And I've been struggling with my weight since, like, high school, middle school even. And I have a giant library of books on diets and exercise. I could explain dozens of different diets to you. The Atkins diet, a vegan diet, a raw food diet, intermittent fasting, all kinds of different things I could explain to you. I'm not chubby because I'm dumb. The issue is I'm not able to put what I've learned into practice. 
not able to put what I've learned into practice. We have a brain, but we also have a heart. When we played the choices game, when you were running from one side of the room to the other, you didn't sit there and think, which is intellectually better, Coke or Pepsi? Whoa, somebody said Pepsi, they're wrong. (laughs) You had a gut reaction, right? Like, you were following your gut. Pizza, Coca-Cola, video games. You weren't sitting there debating the merits of it. I don't know, maybe you were. Who was? Was somebody, like, trying to have an intellectual debate about which one was better? Okay, I didn't think so. This gut reaction used to be more in humanity's wheelhouse. We used to think of our gut as a place of thinking more often. When you look at ancient Greek writing, they talked a lot about the gut as a place of thinking. Researchers at UCLA and McMaster University, they've been studying gut feelings now for a while, and they discovered that the microbes in our stomach affect the neuron activity in our brains. So our brain is is affected by what goes on in the rest of the body. So some scientists have called our gut the second brain. We need to recognize the value of the gut, of our heart. The father in Proverbs chapter 4 admonishes his son to guard your heart, recognizing that we are what we love. We are what we love. Guard the things you love. Set your heart on the right path because the heart is the wellspring of life. The Bible affirms that our heart matters. I've been working in youth ministry for a really long time, my entire adult life, which is more than half my life now. I'm getting old. And I've seen a lot of families who have made the choice to put their children in Christian schools, which I think is really commendable. Send your kids, make sure that they have that Christian education. But I've seen over and over again that the kids who graduate from Christian schools don't necessarily do any better than the kids who went to public school as far as faith longevity goes. Because they often graduate out of their Christian high school and the Christian faith at the same time. So what's the problem? The problem is that we sent them to a school where we filled their heads with Christian knowledge, with the Bible, But we failed to shape their heart. We failed to mold their heart to love Jesus, to love the things of Jesus. It's not enough to be able to recite Bible verse after Bible verse. You have to be drawn to Jesus. Sometimes I've seen Christian school graduates resent the Christian faith, resent their Christian education because it was so force-fed on them, so spoon-fed to them, that even those who are drawn to Christ, they actually no longer know how to feed themselves because they're so used to being assigned homework. When your Bible study, when your Bible reading, when your prayer activity, when all that becomes homework, it does something. How do we cultivate the heart? If what we love, if what we want form who we are far more than what we know, how do we cultivate the heart? Jesus asks, what are you seeking? If you're reading the Bible and you're seeking a good grade, that's what you're going to get. If you're reading the Bible for your parents' approval, that's what you're going to get. If you're studying theology to win a debate, 
You might win a debate, but has your heart been transformed into the image of Christ? The direction of our heart matters. Jesus teaches, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure? Coca-Cola and pizza. Do you treasure Jesus or do you treasure knowledge? Do you treasure being with Christ's bride, the church, or do you treasure community? Now, here's the thing. You're allowed to have divided pleasures. You can love both Christ's bride and love being with other Christians. Amen? Like, we can do both for sure. But it's always important for us to check our motives, to check why we're doing what we're doing. We can't fill our brains with truth and allow the heart to love lies. That's the danger that we face. We can't fill the brain with truth and allow the heart to love lies. We're not bobbleheads. John Calvin, who I actually have a bobblehead of, and for whatever reason, his bobblehead is not um, exaggerated, which I think is, is actually probably appropriate because he's famous for saying that the heart is a human idol factory. Calvin, who was definitely a very smart guy who thought a lot about God, understood and recognized the value of the human heart. The human heart is an idol factory. We'll turn good things into idols and make them bad things. The human heart will direct our worship. It'll direct the path that we go. What do men who know the word of the Lord and engage in habitual sin, what are they seeking? Are they seeking gratification? Are they seeking pleasure? Are they seeking power? How's their heart? We can't think our way out of sin issues, out of the lies of the world, because the world, despite appearances to the contrary, isn't just interested in winning a debate. The world very much would like to win our affections. The media is designed to cultivate affections, affections that sometimes oftentimes, don't glorify God. They want us to believe and love the things that they do. Ravi's life work, a defense of the Christian faith, is tarnished by a lifetime of disordered love, habitual sin, seeking the wrong things while appearing like he was seeking the right things. Knowledge acquired could not outdo the habit of engaging in sinful relationships, of victimizing women. You're shaped by your habits, which is really interesting because our habits, we can do for the wrong reasons, but they also shape us. They also shape us. And this shouldn't be a surprise because virtue isn't acquired through intellect. It's acquired through affection. Education in virtue is not like learning the Ten Commandments or memorizing Scripture. Scripture. Virtue formation, Christ-like character formation, is about training our affections. It's more like practicing scales on a piano until you're able to just play the piano naturally rather than learning music theory. Both have value, but in order to play naturally, you need to practice those scales. Practicing scales helps your hands learn to play naturally. James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits. How many of you have heard that book? It's a New York Times bestseller. It's been on New York Times bestsellers list now for a couple of years. He writes, your habits shape your identity, and your identity shape your habits. 
What do your habits say about your identity? Are you in the word of the Lord? And are you in it for the right reasons? One of the things that I think is one of the most powerful prayers that we can pray is, Lord, help me to love you more. Change my desires. Lord, may the good things I do, may I do them for the right reasons. And Lord, may the bad things I don't do, may I not do them for the right reasons. Lord, cultivate in me a heart for you, a desire for you. May I seek your glory. May I seek you above all else. Because we're so quick to deceive ourselves. People strive to imitate successful people all the time, right? We've seen this. That's why diet magazines, or I guess women's magazines, they're always about a diet on the front. Have you noticed that? We'll see like a celebrity, and they're like, oh, I did Weight Watchers or WW, or I did the Master Cleanse diet, and I just drank lemonade mixed with chili powder, whatever they choose to do. And then we're like, it worked for Beyonce. It worked for, I don't know, some other guy. It worked for, uh, what's his name? Chris Pratt. Pratt. Chris Pratt. Um, if it worked for him, it'll work for me. And then we run out and we go do that thing. What we don't appreciate is that there's more to the habits than just the habits themselves. There's also the intention behind the habits. So your habits shape your identity, and your identity shapes your habits. One of the things that I love about Christ is that he's a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect but he forms our very loves. He forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into our mind. He's after nothing less than our very desires. He wants our loves. He wants our longings. What do you want? What are you seeking? He turned to those two men who would be his disciples. Are you seeking me? Or are you seeking a rebellion? Are you seeking me? Or are you seeking power? What do you want? The person who's seeking to develop a Christ-like image of Christ, who would mold themselves into the image of Jesus, who would allow the Holy Spirit and God to mold him, has to choose again and again to develop the moral muscles and skills to form that character. We have to develop healthy habits, always checking in with our heart. We have to form spiritual habits. We have to guard our heart from habits that are destroying us. How many of you guys can think of a habit that you have that is not healthy, that is pulling you away from Christ? For me, it's often my phone. I just need somebody to take that away from me. Habits allow you to move behaviors from being conscious and effortless to unconscious and effortless. So is reading the Bible a really good thing that we should tell our kids to do? Yes. But as parents, how do we cultivate in them an attitude towards the Bible where they're reading a letter written to them by their God, their king, their friend, more than they're doing homework? When we encourage our students to serve others, how do we cultivate in them a desire to genuinely serve the way Jesus served, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, rather than to go on a service project because they're hanging out with their friends? What are... The habits of grace. What are the soul-shaping habits that are forming you right now? I can think of lots of different habits. Let's, let's take a minute and just share. Like, what are some of the good things that we can do that will shape our affection for God, that will help us to love God more?
For me, one of the things that I love is I love hearing other people's faith stories. When we share testimonies, it always encourages me to hear how God has blessed somebody else, how God has been at in moving in somebody's life. So when I've been a part of groups that have made it a habit to have a time of testimonies, that's been a blessing for me. What are some other habits of grace where we can train our heart to love God? Ooh, I got silence. Yes, James. Read the Bible and pray. Read the Bible and pray. Absolutely. Read the Bible and pray. What are some other Christian practices? Yes. Amen. Be really conscious about your tithing. Make it a thinking exercise. I love that. Make it a feeling exercise even. For me and Tracy, our tithe is automated. We set it up to our bank on bill pay. It just, it happens. So then I have to really engage and think about it. Like to remember like, oh yeah, that money just left my account. And why did it leave my account? Why is this a habit for me that I've, that I've automated? I once heard uh, Rick Warren, he was teaching, I think it was mainly a group of pastors, but he was talking about his understanding of tithing as being formative. He said, every time I give, it breaks the grip of materialism in my life. Every time I give, my heart grows bigger. Every time I give, I become more like Jesus. I love that. Like here, this giving, one, we're doing it as an act of worship for God, but we're also giving because we know that it's changing me into the image of God. We read our Bible because It's an act of obedience to God, but we also know that it's changing us into the image of God. Our motive matters. What are some other things that we can do to shape us? Yeah, Rich. A discipline of solitude. A discipline of solitude. Absolutely. And that's modeled by Christ so often in Scripture. I was thinking this morning, one of those other things that we often see in Scripture, but I don't think very many Christians practice, is fasting. Right? Like today in 21st century America, we got food all over the place. And we don't often do without it. Or that was an intentional practice of Christians, still is an intentional practice of Christians around the world. Not so much here. But when we consciously choose to give up food to focus on God, that's shaping us. That's shaping who we want to be. Other practices. Yeah, Bruce. Singing and worship. Singing and worship, absolutely. I loved listening to worship this morning and singing those songs and just reflecting on how often we are singing about God's love, wanting to cultivate that. Like, we're singing about God's love, we're giving him glory, but it's also stirring up in us this desire to love God more. The habit of worship shapes us. The habit of tithing shapes us. The habit of solitude, the habit of fasting, the habit of reading scripture, of praying, it shapes us. It helps cultivate in us a deeper love for God. I was reading a book um, by James K. Smith. It's called You Are What You Love. And he says this, He says, rival liturgies are counterformation to the lies and the habits the world would have us live into. That's a a rough paraphrase. But basically all those things that the world would have us do, those things that they would have us be habit-forming, habits that take us away from Christ, habits that draw our affection to other places, we counteract that by developing habits that remind us to cultivate a love for Christ. So the beginning of John, Jesus begins with a question. At the very end of John, we see another set of questions. After his crucifixion, he goes out to the Sea of Galilee where he's meeting the disciples. He has breakfast prepared for them. They were fishing. And Jesus pulls Simon Peter aside. This is John chapter 21, verse 15. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said it to him the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Our love for Christ shapes us. God cares about our desires because he knows that our desires form our habits and our habits form our identity. And Christ is checking in here with Peter, asking him, like, what do you love? You're about to go off and do really hard ministry. You're going to be martyred. What do you love? Do you love me enough to end up on a cross, to be crucified upside down, as we know from history that Peter was? Do you love me that much? Do you love me? I was asking about your preferences, right? Pizza, tacos, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Apple, Android. (laughs) Studies have shown that brands can inspire worship-like devotion. Have you guys seen this? Like, let's face it. Like, Apple is a little bit of a cult. They've done studies on people who are watching those Apple event days. You want to know what they find? They find that as you're watching those product release videos, that the same parts of your brain that light up during worship are lighting up when they're showing you the latest iPhone. (laughs) Or when you're at a Disney convention and they're showing you upcoming films or an upcoming Disney ride, like the same parts of your brain are lighting up. We're designed to worship. We're designed to follow our hearts. I'm going to invite up the worship team. That's what we've been created for. It's what we've been created to do. And so we need to be on guard because our hearts will lead us the wrong direction. Our hearts will lead us to worship an iPhone more than we worship God. Our hearts will lead us to worship the latest Disney attraction more than God. And what we love shapes us. Here I am talking about Disney. I'm going to do it again. Who is this? Children, who is this? Prince Naveen. Prince Naveen. Yes, what movie is he from? Princess and the Frog. Well, yes, uh, the Princess Frog. So Naveen is the prince from the Princess Frog. Here he is just beginning his transformation. The villain of the story, which is kind of Prince Naveen, to be honest. The villain of the story is transforming him into a frog because there's nothing that Prince Naveen wants more than what? Do you guys know? Money. So he's turning green to represent money, and then he wants his freedom. So he's able to jump around like a frog. The villain is giving Prince Naveen exactly what he wants and exactly the way he doesn't want it. And oftentimes when we follow our heart, it's the same thing. We end up a frog. We end up a monster. 
But God, he would have us be formed into something different. God would have us use spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, tithing, attending church, missions, evangelism, to form us. The idea is that we press ourselves into God so that we're not formed by the things that we love. Remember all of us at the beginning, we form things that we love. The things we love, we don't form. They form us. So we need to form ourselves into a cross. Form ourselves into the image of Christ through habits, through intentionality, through working with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might love the things that Jesus loves, that we might love the way that Jesus loves. What do you desire? Do you love Jesus? He loves you. Would you stand? Would you worship with us? And this morning, as we transition back into musical worship, my invitation to you is that you just really think about who Christ is. That you ask God to help you to love him more. To cultivate in you habits that would cause you to desire him more and more. That your heart would be trained to love Jesus. Lord, help us to love you more.